0: welcome to the Tyler Baker Podcast. I'm Morgan Fitzgibbon. And this is episode three. We are talking about the trauma of growing up gay. And we're starting off the episode by interviewing uh, Henry Campagna about his Dia del Gay. For those who are new, a little introduction to the podcast. Uh, we talk about everything at the intersection of uh, LGBTQ identity and psyche Um, I am a psychotherapist in Portland, Oregon, Um, graduated from Antioch University, LA's specialization in LGBT psychology. And
1: And I am the lovely lovely co-host, Tyler Baker Wilkinson in California, California. California. Um, I am a marriage and family therapist intern. Uh, currently working as a uh, HIV and STD counselor at the LA Gay and Lesbian Center. I'm also an alumni of Antioch University, Los Angeles, um, LGBT specialization in clinical psychology. I'm, I'm a white uh, gay male, cisgendered.
0: We're going to start off with a clip from Henry's speech uh, from his Dia del Gay, which we'll explain what that means as we get into the interview. So here's a brief clip from Henry's speech. And... That will be followed by our interview. And the
1: full video is available on YouTube. If you just search for LGBT specialization, um, you'll see Henry in his Care Bear shirt. So you can you can watch the full clip there.
0: You can also find links to the clips on our website at lgbtqpsychepodcast.wordpress.com. So we're going to go directly into our, our interview with Henry and we'll come back and talk to you after the interview.
1: As his child got older,
2: he soon realized that there was something different about him, and he learned that this difference was something very bad. He couldn't be his true self. He couldn't talk about certain things he wanted to talk about, things like how much he loved Cinderella. No, because boys don't like Cinderella. He had to act a certain way. He couldn't play dress-up, wear mommy's shoes, which had a lot, <laughs> she still does, <laughs> or play with Barbies, because boys don't do those things. Boys are supposed to be masculine, rough, play sports, and get dirty, all things that little Henry was not interested in. Sure, his mom bought him a Barbie, and last year, I was told that my father bought him a Barbie as well. But when he did play those Barbie, with those Barbies, he did so in secrecy. So what was this kid to do? He couldn't talk to anyone about any of this. He just kept it all inside. He grew sadder and as time went on, he grew sadder as time went on. He spent a lot of time on his own and his mind became consumed with self-hating and nasty thoughts. He felt like he had no one to turn to and felt like no one was on his side. He became resentful of his gay feelings and for his effeminate ways. His gay spirit was crushed and soon thoughts of suicide invaded his mind. This was a lot for this little kid. He was on his own. He was on his own and there was no one there to console him. What this child did not realize was how homophobic, heterosexist, and heteronormative his environment was. And I'm not just talking about the family, I'm talking about the society at large. Let me break down these terms. Homophobia is the fear and hatred of homosexuals. And this family has a fear of homosexuals. Heterosexism is a belief that being heterosexual or straight is the only way to be. And our family has heterosexist beliefs. Most families do. I would say all families do. Heteronormativity. Heteronormativity is a belief that being heterosexual is the only normal way to be. And if you're not straight, then you're not normal and something is inherently wrong with you. And this plays into the psyche of so many of my family members as well as so many in society at large. And unfortunately, these isms still plague me as well. As this this child grew, he internalized a lot of the homophobia, heterosexism, heterosexism, and heteronormativity that surrounded him. He started attacking himself. And people in his environment started attacking him physically, mentally, and emotionally for his difference. People at school were teasing him and telling him he was a little girl. He was pushed around and even spit on When he would come home, all he wanted was to get solace from his family members. He wanted his family members to stand up for him and tell him he was okay the way he was. However, he never, got, he never got it in that way. He was always surrounded by people, but he never felt connected to any of them. In fact, he heard some not so nice statements about him. While he would be walking around the house, He commonly heard people calling him Ethan and telling him that he was too skinny, code for gay. He was told that he laughed he was told that he laughed and smiled too much and that this was a problem because real men don't laugh and don't and real men don't smile. He was getting messages that who he was was bad. Who he was needed to change. And so instead of being true to himself, he started believing others and started disconnecting from himself. He became hypervigilant and worried about his effeminate ways. He became sullen, withdrawn, scared, quiet, and weak. He didn't dare tell anyone that he was attracted to other boys his age. Oh no, boys don't like boys. What the hell is wrong with you for liking boys? Was the question that played in his mind over and over again. As he grew, he tried his hardest to fit this heteronormative family. All he wanted was to be straight and normal. But no matter how hard he tried, this would never happen. Because what this boy didn't realize was that he had a beautiful gay soul. Who he loved were men.
1: So we're here with Henry Campagna. We're going to be talking about um, his experience um, doing the Dia del Gay that he did about a year ago now. Yes. Um, so I'll let Henry introduce himself, and then we'll go from there. So, hi. Hi,
0: Henry. Hi, Henry.
2: Hi. So, yes, I'm Henry Campania. Um, I am 28 years old, soon to be 29, a couple weeks. Um, and I currently live in Temple City, Los Angeles, uh, Temple City, California, in Los Angeles. Um... San Gabriel Valley, born and raised there, I am a gay man of mixed ethnicity, um, my dad was born in Italy, my mother was born in Mexico. And you're also a
1: LGBT specialization alumna, I right? am,
2: I am, I graduated in December 2011. And I currently work for Colors. And um, Colors opened in January 2012 this year um, through the specialization through Antioch University, um, where we provide free counseling services
1: for LGBTQ youth. Youth. Rock on.
0: Yay, Colors.
1: Yay, Colors. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. We've plugged them in uh, (laughs) previous episodes. Thank Uh you. So why don't um why don't we do this? Why don't you like kind of just explain a little bit like what the Dia del Gay is? Okay. Um we played a clip from that earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, anyone listening will kinda of get a feel for it, but maybe you could just say a little bit more about what it actually was for you and um kind of what was the what was the goal? What was how did it come about? Okay. That's a big undertaking. <coughs> Confront your family in that way. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What made
0: you decide to do
2: that? You know, let me just start from. I hope this is gonna be under twenty minutes, but um, <laughs> my reasons going to Antioch. You start from birth. Let, let's just start. <laughs> yeah. Um, coming to Antioch, I wanted to talk to someone about my issues, especially with, um, my family. I had never seen a therapist before, but I was in the LGBT field, um, doing, um, working for a HIV AIDS service organization. Through that, I learned about Antioch and specialization, and I thought it'd be a great opportunity for me to really explore and do some inner work. Um, I'd always been fascinated by that, so, and always, you know, to myself being, I would say, introspective, but not really aware. Um, and so, started the program at Antioch as I got into it. Um, really just started um, seeing... I guess, just kind of wake... I'm looking at that Victor Frankl book, um, Man's Search for Meaning, and they talk about waking up. He talks about like waking up to all of the the chaos um around him and that was kind of where I was um especially when I first started Antioch just kinda waking up to um the homophobia, heterosexism, heteronormativity um in my environment, um, how that shaped me as a kid to a man and um So specifically in your family. Specifically in my family. Um and so when this project came along, Community Action was a class through the specialization that everyone has to take, and it's basically bringing awareness about the specialization out into the community. When the instructor posed the question, what does community mean to you on the first day of class, I immediately thought of my family of origin and going back to why I started at Antioch. Well, um, and I thought about you know, all the things that I learned in the specialization and how it's really helped me. Um, help me just kind of get more comfortable with myself in my skin as a gay man, as a man, as a person, as a human. Um, and I wanted to share that with my family. I wanted to share the ways in which they contributed a lot to my, um, Shit, where do I even start with that? <laughs> <Trauma>. <laughs> to my stuff, yeah. Trauma. Yes, trauma, all, ugh, yeah. Just, yeah, a lot. So, when we broke for lunch, I just kind of composed a whole, I just started writing. And I thought about how, in my family, which is fucking huge, mm-hmm. um, how there's so many events, how there's so many... Um, Just, yeah, celebrations and ceremonies um, that don't really fit me because I'm gay and gay people don't exist in my family. So I wanted to create something that was very gay and that my family members would be forced. I'm using the word forced because I wanted to force them into a gay space Mm -hmm um, because they wouldn't go otherwise. Um, so I came up with the idea to have a gay day and Jeremy actually, um, named, named it Dia de Gay and Giorno de Gay. And, um, he came up with the name and I just kind of like took that and, um, and used it. So my Italian grandparents and my abuelita who's, um, my Mexican grandmother, maternal grandmother, um, could really understand what this day was. Um, so, I'm getting, I'm mm-hmm. getting, I'm like
1: dissociated I'm like, oh, we gotta stay under 20 minutes. It seemed, it seemed like you started to, um, come up with something when you were talking about your, uh, apolitics
2: yeah well, a lot's going was on is there
1: feeling too, well
2: a lot's going on currently right now. she was in the hospital a couple of days ago, so there's just yeah a lot um and she's really been a big supporter of mine, so going into this she she was just yeah she was she was my strength going into this she was really supportive, so I came up with the concept and I posted it in class and i Going into it, I was like, okay, this is going to be really lame is the word that's coming to my mind in the eyes of other people. They're going to think, oh, well, Henry's just using this, um, as a way to have, like, a party and not, like, um, do, like, a research paper and not put in the work and, like, stuff like that. And so when I did present it in class, you know, um... People were, I was having strong emotions presenting it and people having strong emotions kind of receiving it. Um, so I thought, oh, this is actually good. You know, I came up with a good idea. Yay, Henry. Um, and so I was feeling good, uh, presenting it in, in class saying, I want to create a space, inviting family members, friends friends from Antioch, especially, people in this class, for you guys um, to hear me, to hear me speak. I don't... Tyler, Morgan, you guys saw me in class. I only spoke when I was forced to speak. The majority of the times, I feel very uncomfortable in large groups. So I thought, okay, I have to... I'm looking at the Velvet Rage book. Use contrary action, you know, and and go against... um, what it is that i normally do is just kind of like stay to myself, stay quiet, stay hidden, stay kind of locked into that whole trauma um, headspace right. and push through that and um
1: and
2: share I mean, my experiences. I have
1: to say you did that like amazingly Aww. that day. I mean, that was really a very moving day for me. I I, I relate a lot to, you know, well, most gay people (laughs) that are dramatized by their families. And just, um, you really, I I think you had, like, a perfectly eloquent speech prepared. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And, I don't know, I was just really moved by your ability to speak so, like, it was so, like, penetrative. It got right to kind of the core of what your experience was growing up. And Mm it's just that... I was, like, s- sitting there, and I was looking around with, like, my mouth open to everyone, like, do you realize what's happening right now? <laughs> like, I hope you all know what's going on, you know? And Like, some people were smiling and nodding, and I'm like, no, this is amazing, this is huge, you know? Because you have to picture the scene, which is... All in, par- in, in
2: Henry's parents' backyard. Where I grew up. Where well, one of the houses that I grew up.
1: I was with football, probably how many people?
2: Uh, we're saying 70 people. 70 so we're, people. Were there And about 50 of those space.
1: people were your family. Probably. The direct blood relatives <laughs> yes. that you grew up direct with. blood relatives, yes. And um, to be speaking about your experience. So honestly, I just thought it was amazing. Thank you. And you evoked the Care Bearer.
2: <laughs> yes. So, um, bringing the Care Bear into that day, bringing my two-year-old inner Care Bear self with a big heart in the middle of his chest, um, was something that I worked on in in my own uh, therapy, and even I, yeah, in one of our classes too, um, bringing that image in, um, kind of. That was a time in my life where I wasn't thinking about the homophobic world that I was being raised in. I was just kind of myself. And my mom said, she asked me what I wanted to be for um, Halloween that year. I was two years old, and I said a Care Bear. So my grandma made this the uh, costume, and, um, and she said, What do you want in the middle of the, you know... in the tummy, and so I said a big heart, and, um, I think it just kind of connected, you know, when she told me that story, I was just like, that's so, that's so pure, that's so genuine, you know, this little kid comes into this world, just comfortable with who he is, she said I was really talkative, which is really, actually makes me really sad, because as this kid grew, um, he really has to be quiet. Um, so. Um, bringing him. And connecting to. That part of myself. Was really important. Um, in my gay day. I. um I said in, in it, in my speech, this day was for him and anyone else who felt like they couldn't fit that heteronormative, heterosexist um, model. Um, any kid who's not feeling that they belong in that in that world um, to kind of bring it out into the open and to talk about it and to say, no, it's time for you to come out and play. It's safe for you to come out and play. Mm-hmm. So the Care bear. Um yeah. It's just kind of my symbol of of love and hope and mm-hmm. and goodness. And Did I answer your question? Yeah, <laughs> that's totally. that's and that's well. like, yeah.
1: And I mean it I can tell that there's a lot of feeling behind it. even just the symbolism of the care Yeah. But it's like so amazing to have that kind of a symbol to um to be able to reconnect with that core trauma, if we can call it core trauma. You know, as it comes into adulthood and shuts us down, keeps us quiet in classes, things like that. It right. really is. Um, right. You know, keeps me ambivalent in my life or, you know, keeps me stagnating or zombie-like, which I felt as a kid, you know? Yeah. But um, to have those images of what the kid could have been or what the kid was at one point right. before, you know, right. the, the real trauma ensues. Right. And, you know, if you totally. can even find that place, sometimes it starts just from... They won, yeah. You know, Um.
0: and and I have to say, Henry, I remember standing there because I was there, Mm
2: -hmm. and
0: and I cried through the whole thing. And I mean, the whole event was really moving, but I think what made what brought me to tears was the amount of courage it took you to do that. Um. Because I remember you being so quiet. Because I remember you and I being in a competition for quietest (laughs) (laughs) person. Um, and I was thinking as we started this interview that just in, cause I, I haven't been able to see you in person. I don't think since then, maybe at graduation. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking that you already, you look like since then, even you've got, grown more confident mm-hmm. and more, come, come more into yourself.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: So can you just tell us what you, what you walked away from that experience with?
2: That's a, that's a big question. Um, it, it it's mixed it, it was uh, well, we it? were
1: we were talking a little bit just before the interview mm-hmm. about kind of what you were going through uh, during that time and, mm-hmm. and you know so after it was kind of what were the feelings afterwards after, after the after initial after, it after, after yeah
2: that? yeah so after i did it um immediately after i did it i felt I felt great. <laughs> I, I felt um, I felt very powerful. I felt very heard um, and seen. And um, just good. I am proud of myself. Um, and I remember the day after, I felt tired. <laughs> it was Father's Day and people came to our house. And I was just like, I need to go to sleep. So... That's kind of where I've gone to in the past, whenever i and still do whenever I'm feeling very overwhelmed or um exhausted, just kind of shut down mode mm-hmm. um, so there was that, and I was you know Tyler and I were talking earlier, and I, on my year anniversary, um you know feelings of hopelessness actually started uh, coming up, and a lot of, like, suicidal thoughts started, um, started presenting themselves because I started thinking, well. I, I mean, first of all, that's kind of where I go, um, fuck the, see, this is a big question, that's why I'm like, it's mixed, you
1: know, like, um. Well, that's where you go when, what, when you're having intense feelings, or?
2: Yes, when I'm having intense feelings, when there's, I think kind of just whenever I'm uh, reconnecting to something that's associated with my childhood or with trauma and just kind of going back to that place, Mm -hmm. that it was awful. You know, it wasn't... My speech was very, I want to say calculated in a way because it was very... um, I had to present it to a a certain audience, you know, with my family, and I didn't want to just go on attack mode, because it's like, okay, well then people are gonna be um, defensive and resistant, and they're not gonna hear it. And that wasn't my approach. However, this kid, yes, um, was beautiful, and um, you know, he learned from his experiences, and blah blah blah, but this kid's also fucking pissed. Uh You know? And this kid has a lot of um, he, like... (laughs)
1: Murderous
2: range? I, yes. I was saying that day with my mom, because my grandfather did not RSVP, and they never RSVP. But,
1: <laughs> they, um,
2: I told my mom, I was like, if he doesn't come, if he does not come for this kid, I was like, my entire speech is going to go out the fucking window, and I'm going to say what a fucking asshole he is. What a fucking, and now I'm getting, like, shame about, like, Mm -hmm. saying this, because I'm like, oh my god, it's gonna go on the internet, like, you know, but, um, but it's a part of me, and that's how I feel, and that's how I felt then, is that this kid wanted to scream at the top of his lungs in front of all these people at different events, at different parties, at weddings, at everything, when he was so shut down and just couldn't say anything, he just wanted to scream, what the fuck? Why are you treating me like this? This is not okay. And this is not my fault. Like, this is something just like anyone else. Like, I am coming into this world with a heart, with love, with... Yeah, I I've, I've love men, as you love whoever you choose to love. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And, um...
1: And there's something sacred and beautiful Exactly. About that, there's something very beautiful. You should be cultivating that. Exactly. Me, not killing it.
2: Not killing it. And because it was being killed, because it was kind of being kept in that whole don't say anything, that null environment, that, mm-hmm. um... That really fucked with me. And so, I... Where are we at? Oh,
1: God. We were talking about kind of your feelings that came up on the year anniversary. Yeah. And I wonder if a lot of that suicidal... You know, you can think about suicidality as the internalization of your rage, your murderous rage, to actually then, you know, inflict it, or at least fantasize about inflicting it on yourself. Mm. I wonder if part of that isn't... This murderous rage that wasn't spoken to to the family, you know, because I think it's—I know for me, I can tend to share insight with my family. I'll share raw feelings, but rage is the one that is not. Uh You know, I was taught very early that they couldn't handle that, and so I don't necessarily share that rage with them. Uh Uh, So I'm imagining that may be similar with you. That you know, and I'm glad you spoke to it because I would. Yeah, I mean that that would be, you know, if we had to come up with the the shadow side of the day, it would be, you know, where's the murderous rage that that well, kid feels. To, totally. You know.
2: Totally. Yeah. Yes. Cuz this kid was this little cuddly, cute, adorable being, but yeah. with I said a lot of energy and I used that word several times in that um in that speech. And that energy, there's a lot tied to that energy, and a lot of it was that murderous rage, and that, (sighs) I take a breath. (laughs) (laughs) Just a lot.
0: Thank you for being so open and honest. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. It's amazing.
1: And you were so nervous not to have anything to say, or... Not knowing
2: what to say. Yeah, but now all my feelings of of shame are coming in. I'm like, oh God, how is this going to sound? And I'm going to pick it apart when I hear it and all that stuff. So that's something I'm working on. But even, you know what? Even that is how it played out with the Gay Day video itself. Because I didn't know it was being recorded. So my cousin, I saw her like at the corner of my eye, but I thought she was just holding up her like phone, like taking pictures. But um, she said that she had flipped the um, the uh, the speech, and I was like, "Oh shit, I don't want to see that." But when I finally came around to seeing it, like a week later, I was by myself, and I was Rocco was in the room with me. I remember he was on my bed, and I remember being really proud of myself and saying, "You go, boy," you mm-hmm. know, and um, where. At first of course my feelings of okay, you know, like I'm gonna like sound so stupid or I'm gonna be stammering and stuttering and all that stuff and which I did. <laughs> but How much? I was also very clear, very um I was good. Yeah. So, yeah. I got my point across and I did it in a very real, authentic way. Yeah, and so
1: well, what's really cool, Henry, I mean, is like, um, even just in, you know, you just had shame about how this going to sound and things like, and you don't, you're not letting it overtake you, you're not letting it hold you back, you know, like you're able to get through it and, and really say some really powerful things. Thank you. That's really remarkable. Thank you. You know. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I appreciate you, you saying that.
2: am mm. like, did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah
1: so I mean does it how does how does that feel?
2: Feels good. Yeah. It feels good. Um I mean again there are you know the mixed feelings that I have about it but overall I'm glad that I'm speaking up, you mm-hmm. know? I think that's what yeah. the the whole thing is about is me you know pushing through that um that trauma state that i've just kind of been stuck in for so long and breaking through that um for me is speaking and um this was one more opportunity so i really thank
1: you guys for allowing me to to share that well thank you so much for coming on i think it's um because that's what it's really about and that's what we want this podcast to be about is speaking about your subjective experience you know Mm -hmm. that we do have a subjectivity and we have a subjectivity that is, that is very specifically, you know, gay in our case. Yeah. You know, and that, that, you know, it's not about necessarily attacking, although maybe we need to attack sometimes, you know, with our family of origin or whatever. It's not necessarily about them. It's about us respecting our subjectivity mm-hmm. and giving these kids voices when they never had one. Yeah. You know, giving the care of voice that he never had. Totally. And we're able to do that now by going inward as adults, you know and, and partner our Partnering, stuff and get through our defenses and, and get into it, you know, um, but it's really about you know even just right now, like talking about you know how it feels, I feel ashamed about saying this or you know just respecting our subjective experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's what we're trying to make the podcast about, so this was really perfect. Thank you mm-hmm. so much.:
2: You're welcome for coming on. Thank you
1: for having me. Thanks again to Henry for coming on the show and talking about his experience. Um, I really would encourage any listeners to go, uh, check out the rest of that, um, video on, on YouTube, um, and, and links to it on our website. Cause it's, it's only about, it's 15, two parts, uh, at about 15 minutes and you can see the f- full, uh, live action. Um, and I think it's pretty provocative and pretty important. So I would really encourage you to, to listen to the whole thing. Um, and really what, you know, kind of we wanted to center this, uh, episode around, um, as well as, um, uh, what a lot of the, the reason that Henry's Dia Del Gay kind of came up as a really great interview topic and, um, the video in particular. Um, as stuff we wanted to play was, because it really does um, illustrate well, I think, what kind of working with the trauma of growing up gay um, might look like for some of us. So, um, and, and you know, the kind of the uh, the trauma of growing up gay is sort of the subtitle of an article by bloom and fetzing called assaults to self, the trauma of growing up gay. Um, and there'll be a, um, we'll, we'll give the citation on our website if you want to check out and read the full article, but I think it's really important because, uh, for a few reasons, um, it really does lay out in a very, um, psychoanalytic way. The experience, um, the article primarily talks about, kind of the prototypical gay boy, but I think it it is easily generalizable. Um, but it really does talk about the experience of growing up gay um, and how that experience is shaped by this kind of overarching principle of not being gay, that we're all sort of raised uh, with the idea of not being gay and that that is kind of a central organizing um, principle of upbringing is that you're not brought up to be gay. And so that can lead into a slew of different experiences. Um and just a couple of things in the article that I think are are really um important to kind of highlight and and I probably won't even go through everything that I have here but um um and Morgan feel free to just kind of jump in anytime. I mean I kind of just pulled out what I consider to be the main points of the article or things that obviously spoke to me. Um, But sort of just one of the more foundational things is, is this idea of a lack of mirroring responsiveness. Um, So, and very just sort of foundational to this experience is this idea of a lack of mirroring responsiveness. And it's speaking of, Uh, a lack of mirroring from the parents themselves that there is an emerging sexual and affectionate expression from the child um, that is not able to be accurately mirrored by the parents. Um, And in fact, they kind of say in the article that, you know, what's communicating to the children, what's being communicated to the child is that um, to have this respect, to have this mirrored within you would actually be injurious to your parents um that their well-being hinges upon you not being this way so there's kind of just early early on trauma there that's just sort of kind of foundational um and then it sort of goes into something that i think is really really key and kind of has been coming up for me um more so in various ways but just this this idea of feeling different that you hear a lot of people say that they felt different from early on. And that, you know, the key difference between feeling different as gay and different as anything else, you know, the poor kid, the black kid, the Jewish kid, whatever it may be that differentiates you from your environment that may feel like subject of ridicule or oppression or... um any other numbers of things, um, is that what, being gay, you're struggling always alone. You don't have anybody to validate that experience for you. And most often you're confused about what that difference, differentness is, even is. Um, you know, nobody talks about being gay other than to call you a pussy or a sissy or a faggot or whatever it is, or a dyke or a boy or whatever. Um. And so, this idea of what Alice Miller um, is cited in the article is because she kind of terms it the enlightened witness. When you're dealing with trauma, one of the ways to cope with the trauma is is having an enlightened witness, someone that can just simply be able to say, "Wow, that must be really difficult." Or that? how do you feel about that? Or this experience is really fucked up. I understand why you're angry or confused or whatever it is. You have an enlightened witness, someone to share and validate your experience. So as a gay child, you yourself are confused and alone, and it's all secret. The heterosexism, the homophobia, it's all just under the rug, and you can't talk to anybody about it. Um... Because of this, the idea is that, um, you know, those experiences, as traumatic as they are, are kind of unable to be integrated into the personality. You're unable to sort of make sense of the, the, the trauma. Um, and they kind of, the authors, um, sort of talk about, you know, the, in, a, in, ex- Inability to react to and really experience the trauma leads to kind of a sp- idea of splitting, dissociation. It's kind of Freud's idea about what happens, um, um, within the psyche that there can be this splitting, this dissociation within the self. Um, and, and I, as I was kind of reading that, I was thinking about how, how these feelings are kept secret and, and how oftentimes because you can't even make sense of it, even on your own privately, they say, you know, your feelings can be aborted because you can't even make sense of it. So how are you supposed to identify, you know, the child may just feel intensely angry or sad or suicidal or whatever it may be, but you can't necessarily make sense out of your experience either. So it just makes it really, really easy to dissociate. You know, it really, And I was thinking that that indeed could be, you know, it is, not could be, it is the beginnings of internalized homophobia because we don't know what it is. We can't even combat it really. Um, So we just kind of internalize these messages.
0: And by saying we don't really know what it is, I'm wondering, I don't know enough about what your experience was in childhood. To know if this was the same for you but for me like I literally didn't know I didn't I didn't know what the, I did not identify any of those feelings as gay so it wasn't like I wasn't thinking to myself I you know I can't express these thoughts or feelings because it's unacceptable in my family it was just like they didn't have a label to me so there were no words to express it or make sense of it Right, is that is that the same thing? You,
1: yes, you yeah. Is that what you mean? Um, yeah. I mean that that like vague feeling of difference. I remember early on, but I don't. I I more remember, and it's funny because the article talks about this too. That that it's common. Um, just more gender atypical behavior, as being pointed out. Um or there's like this feeling of shame that comes on about gender atypical behavior but not necessarily associating that with gay um and i don't think that you know children who exhibit atypical behavior you know that it necessarily means anything about them um It can, but, you know, often for gay people, it is the, you know, first kind of experience of differentness. So I I do remember, you know, very similar to, to Henry, you know, playing with Barbies, and then at a certain point recognizing that I wasn't supposed to be playing with Barbies, and then I would feel very ashamed by it. And eventually I stopped. Um, so I remember that. I also remember looking up I remember when that gender atypical behavior started to become more evident to my peer groups. And so I started to get the, you know, homo, the gay, the fag stuff, probably around 12. And then I remember looking up in textbooks. Anytime there was a science textbook or anything, I would look up homosexual in the little glossary. And I would always read it. And I did that for a long time. I would, anytime I'd get a science book, I'd first go to gay or like sexual health or, you know, any of those classes. I would always go to, to gay or homosexual. So I was trying to define it. I was beginning to make sense of perhaps my experience is because of this. Um, so that was, that was bigger.
0: That's interesting. I feel like in some ways uh girls have it easier in the beginning since it's somewhat socially acceptable to be a tomboy. Right. Right. You know, I mean I was a huge and continue to this day to be a huge He Man fan. <laughs> um but my best friend was a boy. And so like in that context and most of the peers I hung out with were boys. And in that context, it was, it was okay. Like nobody thought anything different right. of it. Um, and I certainly wouldn't, I, I didn't feel like it wasn't okay. I, I knew that like other girls didn't really want to play He-Man with me. I thought she was kind of lame and I wasn't really <laughs> into her. Um, but I thought that was, I thought that was just something that made me kind of different, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and when I got to that kind of middle school age and, uh, did things like, I, I distinctly remember walking around the mall with one of my very best friends at the time and we're like, Ooh, let's hold hands. People will think we're lesbians. And that, like, that was like, it was like, let's shock people sort of thing. And like this, this memory didn't even come back to me. Like till even recently. And now I look at it and I'm like, well, duh. <laughs> but the thing was, like, that friend of mine was, I-, I still believe, really heterosexual. And so because I was doing these things with friends who who are very heterosexual, like, I was never able to label them as anything but that. If anything that but
1: sense, just rebellion? Okay.
0: Yes. Yeah, it was just like we're just doing this thing. I don't know, or like I had I had my first huge crush on a girl. I didn't realize it was a crush though. I just thought I really, really wanted to be friends with her uh-huh. like a lot. <laughs> and when and when like the fact that I wanted to be friends with her so hard freaked her out. Like I was really hurt and upset, but I, I could I didn't have a context for it other than. Right, and like I just really wanted her to be like really, really my best friend, and I was like, this was probably seventh grade, maybe eighth grade, so right, and I, I didn't have, I didn't have relationship context beyond friend, right, anyway. and
1: especially not for someone of the same sex. You know, I right. mean, I, 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 as you're saying that, I can feel uh, and hear myself, even in my voice, getting very angry about that because there's so much fucking validation and encouragement toward demand it's a fucking demand towards being heterosexual if that had happened with a guy for you you would have gotten so much (laughs) cultivating and sensitivity from the parents around oh well maybe you really liked this boy and and he broke your heart and yada 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 but not if it's a girl yeah and all right. of my th- friends growing up were girls and the only thing i ever got was no validation for um you know any closeness that i felt with them because they mirrored a part of me um a gay part of me um that i couldn't relate to heterosexual boys i could relate to heterosexual females um And they accepted me wholeheartedly. And th- I never got that validation. All I ever got was, oh, Tyler's got the girlfriends. Look at mm-hmm. Tyler. He's a real ladies' man. I'm like, we're having fucking slumber parties talking about boys, you fucking heterosexist prick. <laughs> it's like, it's so enraging. Yeah. You know, it and is. I think that's yeah. how the trauma kind of continues and becomes even more overt. You know, we're Mm -hmm. talking a little bit more on an unconscious level, but it can be more overtly conscious, the the homophobia and the heterosexism, but, you know, and that's an example of one way that the trauma continues into our exploration of who we're going to date and who we're going to, you know, feel related to and who we're going to be attracted to and Mm -hmm. how we've you know, come out as individuals.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking when you were talking about the mirroring part, um, I I had, I had a totally weird and uh, I don't know how else to explain it. It was a very weird and confusing mirroring experience. And I think part of the reason that it took me so long to figure out that I mean, I went into my early 20s thinking, like, all women find other women really hot. They just don't act on it. And that doesn't make you not straight. Like, that, I seriously, truly Uh believe that. And the reason being was that I grew, I my mom was single mom for most of my upbringing. And I grew up in a household that was filled with, like, this gorgeous female art and, like, You know, we we had this um, book of uh, Vogue magazine photo spreads that had all sorts of, like, nude and semi-nude women in it that my brother and I used to just... (laughs) (laughs)
1: And
0: and because it was never... My mom owned all this stuff, and her explanation was always just that the female body is beautiful. Now, there wasn't any sort of male body imagery going on anywhere. Um, It that that was the message that was conveyed to me. It's mm-hmm. totally normal to be totally attracted to women and not see that as a, as a sexual mm. anything. I I don't know. It's, it's yeah. still bizarre, but um so that was what I had mirrored for me a, was Yeah. Invisible.
1: well and it's funny cuz in a way that that sounds very bizarre because you'd think that it, that it it could be a very, you know, female centered and and embracing the feminine and things like that. But the the fact that, you know, what was not being acknowledged is the lesbianic in that and the, mm-hmm. the same sex love and attraction that is, is inherent in that, yeah, you know? So, definitely. I mean, even in that kind of a scenario, you can still pull out this very subtle, you know, lesbian phobia in that case, probably more specifically, mm-hmm. um, you know what that would do to little, you know, bi queer Morgan, this little girl. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It could have been an awesome. It could have been for sure.
1: But,
0: but then, like I, the reason that came up was when you were talking about how, uh, it, it, anything other than this heterosexual reinforcement is threatening to right. the parents and. For me, I feel like it was threatening, not just in a, in a, you can't be anything but straight way, but in a, this may mean something for me and I'm uncomfortable with that mm-hmm. sort of way.
1: Yeah. And I think like, um, um, you know, the result of this can be, um, well, just to kind of go to the article for a second, cause I think, um, What's really important to mention, too, is that, you know, they kind of say this in the article, um, that, you know, our first step towards, I guess, um, dealing with this can be coming out. You know, we come out as gay or lesbian or trans or bi, um, and we we gain support of a community, you know, and we may even gain mirroring and validation from some people. You know, most people are not coming Mm -hmm. out prior, you know. I guess today it may be 12, 13 years old sometimes, but you know, typically I don't think it's changed too much that, you know, people are still coming out in their late teens is, I still consider that to be early. Um, you know, but most mm-hmm. people in their twenties sometime, um, it's not till they get away from the fucking family that they're able to do it most of the time. Um, but anyway, you know, we can gain that support, but they really point out that those internal structures that are laid down in childhood are still very ever present. And even when people mm-hmm. do gain the support of family of origin, you know, it doesn't necessarily make up for that early deprivation. And that's something that right. really can fuck with me a lot, because I I do get a lot of support from my parents now. And I confuse Mm -hmm. that with how they were then. So the way they are now almost lets them off the hook for all the trauma before. You know, and it blocks Mm -hmm. me from really looking at that and really fully experiencing those feelings that I had then towards my parents that have never been able to be Mm -hmm. dealt with or integrated. Mm -hmm. Um, And so kind of leading in just that, you know, my thoughts kind of were that the results of this is like really being cut off from an emotional life, which in turn is cut off from relationships, intimacy, and then just a pervasive lack of self-worth. And Mm -hmm. these defenses that we need as kids can really block our full experiencing of love and same sex eros as adults. And so Mm -hmm. then it's our task to try to integrate these past traumas into our present understanding of ourselves and of our life and of our background and our history as we weren't able to do before. So being our own kind of enlightened witness then to the past trauma and working through it. Um, And that just kind of resonated with me because I know for a very, very long time, um, I was not able to have relationships with men. Um, I could have brief sexual encounters, but Nothing more than that. I just could not tolerate connection. Um, And I think that's the most neglected part of myself has been my gay self as -hmm. a young boy. There was no mirroring. There was no connection to same-sex love um, ever. So then I, you know, grow up and sort of retardedly try to have these relationships with men that just always resulted in this nauseating shame that was given to me in childhood. Mm -hmm. And it's really only been in the last few years that I've been trying to look at that more and more. So, is that a conversation stopper? (laughs)
0: I just got stuck in thinking about, like, <sighs> I got stuck in my own rage about that, which I was not able to express. That's what happened.
1: You have rage about that?
0: I have rage that that happens to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: but you're laughing.
0: I that's the way I deal with it. Yeah.
1: Well, I think you're right, Morgan. It is enraging. Um and that's part of the work, right? Mm-hmm. Being enraged by it.
0: Which is so fucking hard for so many people to do. I mean, it's hard for me to do and I try my very best to model it, but I I'm not good at it at all and I I see how just stunted people are by their inability. To to even acknowledge that there is any rage about it, you know.
1: Um how stunted people are?
0: <sighs> yes. People. And myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, these people. Those those people out there in the world, they're so stunted. They they can't get into their rage.
0: I totally can't either. I really can't. <sighs> it's it's yeah. It's bad. It's hard. Um Not, yeah.
1: You've got quite a narrative around your rage. (sighs) Meaning what? I mean, it's bad. It's hard. Yeah, no, can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it.
0: Lots of words for it. Well, lots
1: of reinforcement towards not being able to do it.
0: Yeah. That's true.
1: That's a problem.
0: It is, because then it comes out in ways that I don't like.
1: I think you can do it.
0: Yeah, you're probably right.
1: What if you were to just flip the switch and get into your rage right now?
0: I would be really embarrassed.
1: You'd be so shame holds you back from feeling your rage.
0: Oh, it totally does.
1: Which is probably very much how your rage was controlled by your parents.
0: Uh-huh. I'm guessing. Yeah. That was a pretty safe guess. Yeah. Yeah. I like your rage, though. It models it well for me. And I I aspire to have the courage to do that.
1: (laughs) let you off the hook.
0: No, it doesn't let me off the hook. But it comes to mind at times when I'm like, I should be more free to do that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I get it. And I I mean, I think you should, too. I think everybody should. Um, But, I mean, that's kind of, again, how we end up splitting and dissociating and... um, you know, that's how we have to deal with it early on, um, is to just split off. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, we end up acting it all out. And I don't, you know, you're, you're saying that, you know, you wish you could get into it like I do. Um, and I guess I just, it's so hard for me to do, too. Um, and (laughs) I, by no means do I own my rage all the time. Mm. Um, I think there's certain scenarios where I feel safe enough to do it or that it's being, you know, validated by a therapist or by somebody else or by, you know, my husband. But, um, you know, it takes a lot for me to feel safe because my feelings felt very unsafe, Mm -hmm. um, for a long, long time. You know, and, um, my mother was very hysterical and her intense feelings were very unsafe to me and literally were, you know, I mean, vicious fighting and, um, threats and, you know, it, it became very expressing rage was always so traumatic because it was my parents expression of rage, like acted out in these violent ways towards each other.
2: Mm
0: Mm-hmm
1: that really set down these pathways for me that, you know, rage leads to destruction and falling apart and everything being destroyed. And, um, you know, so I, I... That's an impediment to getting into my rage, but, you know, hopefully being aware of that, I can intervene on that a little bit because I won't fall apart by getting into rage. Mm. I'm a very enraged, hateful person just in general. I hate a lot.
2: Mm.
1: I hate everybody every day. (laughs) I really do. A part of me does at least. Yeah. So the trauma of growing up gay. Rage. 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 Well, you know, it goes into integrating that. I mean, if you cannot ever access the rage, how are you going to integrate those past experiences of the of those traumas? You know, and that's the idea here that I think we're talking about and um is being able to uh look at the trauma, feel it.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Imagine a traumatic scenario and how, what the range of feelings that someone would go through in that traumatic scenario. And imagine never being able to go through that process and what that could end up with. That is sort of, in a so oversimplified nutshell, the trauma of growing up gay. It's a trauma that happens and is completely erased and we have no language to deal with it until Mm -hmm. we become adults. And then trying to go back and piece it back together through all of our defenses against it and go through the process that we need to. Not to say that you're going to take away all of your, you know, charged feelings around it, but being able to fully deal with that um, as an adult looking back now, um, which is why, again, like the Henry clip and the Henry interview, I think, is really important. Um, because that is what he was doing. He has this image of this inner care bear, this inner loving care bear, gay boy who at some point continually was traumatized and crushed. And his Dia del Gay was about speaking for that boy uh-huh. who couldn't speak then. You know, right. he's taking ownership of that trauma history and those core traumas within himself and trying to speak to them, integrate them, experience them, um, you know, and represent them as they should be represented.
0: hmm. And you can hear it. You can hear in his interview how he's still in that process of like coming to even coming to recognize the rage that that little boy has mm-hmm. and giving it a voice and integrating those experiences and then, wanting to dissociate from that feeling and, you know, having that enlightened witness.
1: Yeah. (sighs) I think it's a lifelong process. I think, you know, I mean, as you begin to get more familiar with certain aspects of, of you, your personality, your history, other things come up and then old shit that you used to pull back in the day, come up or what, you know, things that you think you've worked through before come back and, you know it's an ever evolving process of paying attention to your inner world, mm-hmm. but I think it's a worthwhile endeavor and something to encourage absolutely um, how does that How does that feel Morgan
0: I think that's good i mean yeah. I think we've really touched on some for me at least, we touched on some pretty deep personal stuff that
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm, I'm still going to go back and think about. Mm-hmm.
1: Um. Yeah. And I don't think, um, you know, it's not our intention to um, fully, you know, present in this perfectly digested way, these topics. I think it's more about um, presenting the topics in ways that we connect with and talking about our own experiences. And hopefully that can provoke um, and uh, be of some help to listeners and people who are also trying to do inner work and, and um, you know, are interested in this kind of material.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So these are all things to be um, continually brought up and worked with and, hopefully these are things that can be worked on in in personal therapy too and in our professional work um mm. so yeah that, that and i guess all that's to say that that feels pretty pretty good i think we you know introduced henry and um kind of the points that i highlighted in the article and then our own experiences which is what we set out to do
0: yeah but that, that. Was good,
1: and I maybe we can continue to get into your block around your rage.
0: Yeah, it's coming. All right, I, I appreciate you calling me out on that. I do want to say that. Thank you.
1: That was barely calling you out, just so you know. <laughs> that
0: was very gentle.
1: Thanks. That was too gentle. If we had more time. <laughs> Maybe we'll keep recording after we sign off and see what comes out. <laughs> <up. laughs> right. Okay. Um so our next episode sort of up in the air. Yeah.
0: Let's see where we go with the next episode.
1: Stay tuned about the next episode.
0: Yes. Or uh check in with our podcast. We'll- I mean, our, not our podcast, our website, and um, you can always get updates there.
1: Yes. And that website is what?
0: It's www.lgbtqpsyche.wordpress.com. Uh,
1: yes. And then also, um, lgbtqpsychi podcast.podbean.com is where you can download episodes. Um, search for us on Facebook and email us any thoughts, feedback, comments, provocations at podcast at yahoo.com. Then we'll, um, on the Podbean and WordPress, we'll also have links to the Bloom and Fetzing article, Assaults to Self, um, and Henry referenced in his interview a few things from The Velvet Rage by Alan Downs, um... And we'll also put up links to the video for Henry's Dia del Gay.
0: All right. And thank you for joining us.
1: And. Cheers, queers. <laughs> what was my sign off going to be?
0: Ah, uh, shit, I forget. I go back and listen to the last episode
1: Salutations from Gayland.
0: That's right. It was Salutations from Gayland. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.